In my additional conversation with Dr. Julie Bramer, we began by discussing the historical evolution of immunotherapy of cancer. Just going back into history, one of the first therapies approved for use was mainly focused on melanoma as well as kidney cancer, which is the IL-2 story, certainly using something systemic to stimulate the immune system did show long-term responses. So we, through preclinical models as well as clinical models, we've seen that immune surveillance can be manipulated into a tumor response, but certainly it seemed to be limited mainly to melanoma as well as kidney cancer. Certainly some of this may be due to, at least in melanoma, with a high mutational rate. Melanoma is known to have one of the highest mutational rate of all cancers. And so the thought is abnormal proteins are expressed on the cell surface and easier for the immune system to pick up and to use as surveillance. But certainly our immune system is not good enough in doing this, and various different mechanisms have been described over time about how tumors co-opt certain pathways to thwart the immune system or shield itself from the immune system. We know that T cells require first a signal to show that the protein that it evaluates or denotes as abnormal is truly not self. And then also it needs a stimulatory signal. And so pathways that are stimulatory do then turn on the T cell. And then the T cell typically would be able to attack either a a virus or abnormal protein, or in our case, cancer cells. Could I just ask you, you know, because I think there's been a lot of skepticism over the years about immunotherapy, particularly because of the lack of success until recently. But that basic paradigm of the immune system and cancer, do you think that holds for most cancers, for all cancers? You know, it seems like it's coming out of sort of an antibiotic bacterial infection model. Does that really apply for most cancers? I think most likely, at least when it comes to the checkpoint story, a minority of all cancers use those pathways to shield themselves from the immune system. But we know there's various different ways that a tumor can actually shield itself from the immune system, at least a solid tumor. You know, using other tumor microenvironment cells, such as macrophages and other cells to basically excrete certain cytokines that are inhibitory to T cells. Certainly there's different ways that the tumor cell itself can express proteins that can take a checkpoint pathway and use it to shut down T cells, as well as other pathways or even genetic abnormalities that it makes it hard for the immune system to pick up. But certainly for solid tumors, I think over time we're going to find out that the immune system can be manipulated to the point that we can see a response. But certainly right now, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with the CTLA-4 pathway being looked at in solid tumors in addition to melanoma, as well as these various PD-1 as well as PD-L1 inhibitors using the program DEATH-1 pathway and to basically block that and use that to stimulate the T-cell response to a tumor. But again, You know, this is a small percentage of patients that we're seeing, but certainly not compared to what we are typically used to seeing in melanoma and kidney cancer with IL-2. Again, a small percentage of patients have durable responses, but again, now we're seeing in other solid tumors a higher response rate using this type of checkpoint inhibition. 
Can you talk at a very basic level of your vision of sort of how checkpoint inhibitors work and how various types of vaccines work? Certainly my expertise is in checkpoint inhibition. So these sort of antibodies have been developed to either bind to a ligand that is expressed either on an immune cell or a tumor cell, or these antibodies have been developed to bind to a receptor that typically would be expressed on a T cell. And by binding, it blocks the ligand coupling with the receptor and allows a overriding stimulatory signal to stimulate the T cell to react and target the cancer cell. Now for vaccines, what they're trying to do is actually increase and drive lymphocytes towards a particular protein or abnormality expressed by the cancer cell. Certainly the vaccines thus far have been pretty basic using either abnormal proteins or glycoproteins such as MUC1 or MAJ3 to actually stimulate T cells to drive towards a cancer that overexpresses that protein. Vaccines also use therapies called adjuvants to try to increase the dendritic cells to take up those proteins and present those proteins to the T cells. I think as time goes by, personalized vaccines or vaccines that are more broadly able to be used for solid tumors, we're going to see those type of therapies being developed and tested, and certainly some of those are ongoing right now. But unfortunately, at least in lung cancer, vaccines just have not shown a significant improvement in survival as we've seen with the various different vaccines whose data has been presented this past year. Any thoughts about whether or not vaccines might be more relevant if combined or sequenced with checkpoint inhibitors? Absolutely. I think one of the next steps is looking at combining the vaccines that we have or vaccines that are being developed with PD-1 or PD-L1 antibodies. At least some of the studies have shown that some of the tumors that express PDL1 or at least upregulate their genes to express PDL1 may be less likely to respond to these type of vaccines or these vaccines don't work as well in those type of tumors. And so by combining the vaccines with a checkpoint inhibitor, potentially we may see an increase in response, particularly to the vaccines. I think, at least in melanoma so far, we haven't seen that with the GP100 vaccine, but we'll see in other tumors to see if we can resurrect some of these vaccines. So I'm going to go through some of the clinical data and clinical issues with checkpoint inhibitors, but first, kind of getting back to the biology again, can you talk about your vision about how CTLA-4 inhibitors like ipilimumab work and how anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1 agents work? From a very basic standpoint, And certainly there are nuances, but the way I understand for CTLA-4, this checkpoint pathway is used early on in T-cell stimulation in order to control the T-cell response centrally, i.e. in the lymph node. So by blocking that early on, it allows the T-cells to remain on, where the PD-1 pathway is used later on in T-cell activation in the periphery, right where the T-cells are trying to attack. And typically this pathway is used by our immune system to control itself and prevent autoimmune diseases. 
But in cancer, this type of pathway is used to shut down the T cell abnormally. So by blocking this pathway in the periphery at the tumor level, it allows the T cells to remain activated locally. And in terms of mechanisms, what's the difference between an anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1? So an anti-PD-1 antibody blocks the receptor in that pathway, which is typically expressed on T cells. A PDL1 antibody is an antibody directed towards the ligand, which can be expressed on tumor cells, but also can be expressed on T cells as well. So it's just two different ways of blocking the same pathway. Certainly each type of blockade can have at least theoretical differences. If you block the PD-1 receptor, you block its combination or coupling with both of its ligands, PDL1 as well as PDL2. If you block PDL1, you block the coupling between PDL1 and PD1, but not the coupling between PDL2 and PD1. Now, there's potential differences that might occur, at least theoretically, if you don't block PD1 with PDL2. This might cut down in the immune effects in the lung, but again, this is very theoretical. So let's talk about some of your cases as a way to sort of get into the clinical issues, beginning with your 78-year-old man. So in this elderly gentleman with recurrent squamous cell carcinoma, he had disease that did not recur for several years after standard concurrent chemotherapy and radiation for stage three disease. Certainly, he did have some long-term emphysema or COPD. He had never required oxygen for his COPD or even his lung cancer in the past or present. Certainly, he, at the time, was not really interested in going back on standard chemotherapy for now an incurable disease. And so he was looking really for other options. At the time he presented, was he symptomatic from the disease? He had an increased cough, but otherwise he had a good performance status. He was still working in his auto repair shop with his family, so he was relatively active. He was not significantly symptomatic from his disease. However, he had lost a significant amount of weight. So what happened? So we actually enrolled him on a clinical trial, the phase one clinical trial, looking at nivolumab in the first line setting in patients who had never been treated for their metastatic disease. And he actually was one of the partial responders. And his response lasted well over a year. He did develop some low-grade pneumonitis where we did decide to stop the therapy and give him steroids, but he responded beautifully to that, and his disease, even with steroids, remained in response. So what was the chronology of what happened? He started on therapy, and when did the pneumonitis occur? The pneumonitis occurred after six months of therapy, and it was very low-grade throughout. He picked it up on imaging, or he had symptoms? It was picked up on imaging. And for most of our patients with lung cancer, we see what we call ground glass opacities come and go, typically, depending on how large the tumor is. You know, someone with COPD, if you have some slight inflammation, it might look more abnormal because you don't have as much normal lung. So it's certainly sometimes hard to tease out and you have to first rule out infections, rule out the fact that it could be tumor, and then if it does not improve, certainly consider 
stopping the therapy if they're becoming symptomatic, as well as potentially adding steroids. He developed what we originally thought was a COPD exacerbation in addition to what we thought was pneumonia. We treated him for pneumonia and things did not improve, and so we put him on steroids and things significantly improved. Now, how much was pneumonitis and how much was just his COPD? The infiltrates on scan did improve with the steroids. And prior to the time that this occurred, how was he tolerating treatment and what was happening to the tumor? The only other side effect he developed was hypothyroidism, and that was easily replaced with some Synthroid, and his weight had stabilized, had not further dropped, and he was continuing to work. His main complaint was having to come to see us for infusions every couple of weeks. So he was doing quite well. Did he have any clinical signs of hypothyroidism or you just picked it up in his blood work? We just picked it up in his blood work. And that's typical. I have had a few other patients who actually developed hyperthyroidism first and they were symptomatic with their hyperthyroidism, but then over time they became hypothyroid and we were actually following their thyroid symptoms. What was going on with the tumor? It again, significantly decreased in size in all sites, and his tumor was labeled as partially responding. And how long did it take for this response to occur? It occurred by the first scan, which was around eight weeks. And so then he is cruising along. It sounds like doing pretty well. He gets this pneumonitis. How long was he on the steroids, and what kind of steroids and what dose? So for minimally asymptomatic pneumonitis, we typically start either methylprednisolone, one milligrams per kilogram per day, or you can do it orally, prednisone, around 60 milligrams a day. And then we taper slowly for over a month. And in general, this is easy to control, and you taper over, we tend to taper over around six weeks, get them down to 10 milligrams a day of prednisone at six weeks, and then stop Certainly, we're monitoring patients' symptoms quite frequently throughout this six weeks. We're following O2 SATs, patients' symptoms, as well as we are looking at chest x-rays to make sure that the infiltrates are not worsening and continue to improve. And he got put back on treatment? He did get put back on treatment, and he did well with that, and then stopped it per protocol. And what was the total amount of time he was treated? For over a year. So he gets stopped, and at the point he stopped, he's still in a PR? Correct. And then what happened? He developed some other complications not related to his cancer, mainly his COPD as well as heart disease, and he recently passed away about six months after we stopped treatment due to these other problems not related to the treatment or his cancer. Interesting. How about your 54-year-old lady? Again, uh, female smoker, metastatic adeno, KRAS, mutant positive, presents after disease progressed on pemetrexate and carbo, history of peripheral vascular disease and rheumatoid arthritis. So that patient came to me wanting immunotherapy. Her physician had recommended that she consider it. So this was a patient with standard KRAS mutant disease. She had done well for a period of time on pemetrexate and carboplatinum, but her disease progressed. 
She was looking for a clinical trial. However, when she came to me, she did mention the fact that right before starting Pemetrexed, she was on Embrel for her rheumatoid arthritis. Being on the Pemetrexed did seem to control her rheumatoid arthritis quite well. However, with a history of autoimmune disease requiring therapy, I did not feel comfortable putting her on this type of therapy And certainly she would not qualify for enrollment on a clinical trial. And can you talk a little more about the severity of the RA she had? Her rheumatoid arthritis required immune type of therapy, which was called Embrel. It's an infusion that has been shown to improve symptoms in rheumatoid arthritis. And it is a drug very similar to infliximab. So she was, you felt should not be on a trial of a checkpoint inhibitor. Right. How did she respond when you talked to her about that? It was very disappointing. You know, she particularly was interested in that. Certainly we were able to offer her other types of clinical trials targeting KRAS, but certainly everyone wants to be on this immune type of therapy. So it certainly was disappointing to her. I think just having that sort of information out there for oncologists that patients with active autoimmune diseases would not be eligible for this type of therapy, just in the fact that we know that this type of therapy may cause flares of that type of disease. Certainly patients with a history of hypothyroidism, where their thyroid is already burnt out, which may or may not be related to an autoimmune disease, I feel more comfortable putting those type of patients on this type of therapy because you can replace the thyroid. Even patients who already have type 1 diabetes, I would feel comfortable putting them on this type of therapy because I wouldn't expect that to get worse on this type of therapy. You know, they already require insulin. So, you know, I'm talking more about patients who have an autoimmune disease that is either affecting their kidneys, their joints, or certainly other significant organs that you can't replace. Although, I mean, 54 years old, metastatic, you know, disease, you know, RA is a bad disease, but usually not life-threatening. I mean, I'm putting myself in that position. I'd be really disappointed. No, I know. I know. It's all about quality of life as well. And we've got to keep them well for a long period of time so that as other therapies come out, that would be better targeted for them. Or when we know how to better take care of patients on this type of therapy, certainly potentially it would be an option at that point. I think there's some anecdotal cases in melanoma, either treating these patients with ipilimumab that they've been able to treat them through this type of therapy, but none of that data is available for the PD-1 or PDL one antibodies. What about your third patient, the 64-year-old lady? So again, metastatic squamous, anti-PD-1 on a clinical trial, three doses and gets diarrhea five stools a day. Yes, so patients can develop diarrhea. So behind fatigue and rash and itching, diarrhea is the next most common type of side effect from this type of therapy. So just to kind of go through the grading, so grade one diarrhea, we would say is less than four stools a day and basically asymptomatic. At that point, most patients, if they develop this type of therapy, you can treat them through it, i.e. continue the PD-1 or PD-L1 antibody and treat symptomatically. However, if the patient begins having more frequent stools, more than four a day, or starting to have some mild symptoms, then stopping the therapy and trying to symptomatically treat them would be important. 
Now, if patients become dehydrated and having very frequent stools, more cramping or bloody diarrhea, this is a higher grade. And then stopping therapy and starting oral steroids would be important. If they have significant stools where they're significantly dehydrated and it's affecting, say, their kidney function, then you can admit them and do IV steroids as well. So it's just mainly vigilance. A lot of patients will think, well, I just ate something wrong yesterday and I have diarrhea. But if it lasts a couple days, you certainly have to evaluate them for colitis. Of course, our patients that are coming in and out of the clinic, we always worry about C. diff colitis. And so you can test for that very easily. If that's coming back negative, having your trusty gastroenterologist potentially help you either with a flexible sigmoidoscopy or starting them on steroids and see if they improve are things to do. But it's really, again, making sure that the patient is aware that this is not something that normally happens with this type of therapy and to report it quite quickly to you so that you and your staff can get this under control. Now, this patient, which agent was she on and what was going on with the tumor? So her tumor was stable, and this was with a PD-1 antibody. And so we did have to stop the antibody and put her on oral steroids. And her tumor has remained stable while she's been off of therapy and on steroids. So at least in the patients, I would say across the board, who have developed toxicities where we've had to start them on oral steroids, we haven't seen a decrease in response or tumor growth after starting the steroids. So that sort of negates that original, what we were talking about before, about giving steroids around chemotherapy and how it might decrease the effect of immunotherapy. We're not really seeing that in patients who develop these type of side effects and have to go on steroids. Do you think that this is going to evolve into a short-term type of therapy based on these kinds of experience as we sort of sort this out, or do you think it's going to end up requiring continuous treatment? Right now, I think that's one of the most important questions. As these sort of therapies are getting ready to be approved, knowing how long a patient really needs to be on this type of therapy and whether or not patients can re-respond if their tumor does progress down the road is probably one of the most important questions to answer. Certainly, it also comes down to healthcare dollars, you know, getting continuous treatment until progression, particularly if your disease is well-controlled for years. I don't know if we can monetarily support that long-term, depending on how much these sort of drugs cost once they get approved. So certainly knowing the minimal amount of therapy that is needed and whether or not that affects survival will be most important. And, you know, companies are looking at this, which, again, I strongly support looking at comparing continued till progression versus stopping at a particular time point. A lot of the trials have stopped at one or two years, and certainly off of therapy, we're seeing continued responses, at least on the original phase one single-dose trial with nivolumab, we did end up retreating a patient with melanoma with PD-1 after we stopped the drug. She was off of the antibody for 18 months. Her disease progressed. We put her back on the antibody, and her disease responded for over another year. So, you know, you can see responses again. That's interesting. Let's finish out with your fourth case. And 
A lot of people recently have been saying our stuff helps you get ready for the boards, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> we don't do it that way, but I guess we try to do what's relevant. And I was thinking this case could be a great board question, maybe of the future or maybe real soon. 59-year-old woman, never smoker, metastatic adeno. I'm assuming she was a mutation wild type. Correct. And receiving anti-PD-1 therapy in a clinical trial. has been on therapy six months. Disease has been controlled but presents with symptoms consistent of a viral illness, fever, and aches. She was recovering, but then the fatigue continues to be an issue, and she's not able to work. So the board question is, what's your workup? What issues should you be aware of in patients with immunotherapy coming in complaining of worsening fatigue? Certainly another case of a patient who was being treated with a PD-1 antibody for a long period of time with her lung cancer, around six months, and she had a viral illness. She just thought it was a case of the flu. But over a couple weeks period of time, her symptoms just did not improve. She was so fatigued. Typically, she was working on this type of antibody, but she could no longer work because she was so tired. So at that point, we looked at other things. We had been following her thyroid function, and that was maybe borderline low, but we actually found that she was adrenal insufficient. She had serious low cortisol levels that did not stimulate to the cosentropin stem test, and so she did require steroid replacement. So she had a hypophysitis? Yes, but it did not affect the TSH, and so it was limited mainly to her, actually, the adrenal gland and the pituitary because the ACTH level was low as well as the cortisol level was low and did not stimulate to ACTH. When you do see hypophysitis, do you see anything on imaging? If you catch it early, patients can sometimes complain of headaches, and then getting an MRI, you can see inflammation around the pituitary. And so there has been some data about giving those patients steroids and trying to save their pituitary from becoming completely insufficient. But, you know, at least in this case, it was too late, and we actually didn't see any inflammation of the pituitary, but I think it was already burnt out by the time she became symptomatic. So in this type of patient with prolonged fatigue, you do think of hypothyroidism as well as low cortisol levels. And actually on her, her TSH was normal, not elevated, and her free T4 was low normal. Certainly we're following her for the development of hypothyroidism. But probably most interesting, her sodium level was low at 131, and her potassium level was high normal. So we did think about low cortisol levels, and we did check her cortisol level, and it was low. So she has probably multiple hormonal imbalances due to autoimmune attack of these various different glands.